Yeah, this is EM Cases episode 50 on pediatric sepsis. Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode, we have two pediatric emergency physicians from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, that's CHEO. Dr. Sarah Reed is a clinical investigator at the CHEO Research Institute and an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatric and Emergency Medicine at the University of Ottawa. She's the Director of Continuing Medical Education at CHEO and is co-lead of the CHEO ED Outreach Program, which brings evidence-based pediatric emergency care and clinical resources to community emergency departments. Dr. Gina Netto is an Assistant Professor at the University of Ottawa. She was the Associate Medical Director-in-Chief of the Division of Emergency Medicine at CHEO, as well as a Clinical Investigator at the CHEO Research Institute. She's also the chair of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada Pediatric Emergency Medicine Specialty Committee. But even ketamine can cause hypotension in a child that's catecholamine depleted. You want to get in 60 mils per kilo of normal saline as quickly as you can within that first hour. So instead of the ABCs, it's the C and Bs. As soon as you suspect that this child has fluid refractory shock, you should be preparing to start your inotrope. I would never put it on the pump and plug in 999 and hope for the best. Hey folks, I'd like to announce a new collaboration that I'm really excited about. This collaboration is with TREK, that's Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids. This is an amazing, fairly new organization. The majority of children in Canada are treated in general emergency departments that are not part of a children's hospital. As many as 40% of these children don't get treatments for which clear evidence exists, and up to 20% get a treatment which is of no benefit or even harmful. Translating Emergency Knowledge for Kids, that's TREK, is a growing network of researchers, clinicians, health consumers, and national organizations whose mission is to accelerate the speed at which the latest knowledge in children's emergency care is put into practice by general EDs, rural, remote, or urban. So TREK has done a huge needs assessment across Canadian EDs and come up with a set of key topics that general emergency physicians should learn more about. One of them is pediatric fever and sepsis, which we're going to do on this episode. So Trek is going to help me bring you Canada's brightest minds in pediatric emergency medicine on these podcasts. For more information on Trek, just go to trek.ca. That's T-R-E-K-K -K dot C-A. By the way, if you hear some birds chirping in the background or fire crackling or dogs barking, that's because I'm adding the commentary on this episode from my cottage on Lake Simcoe in the woods. And now on to pediatric sepsis with our first case. A seven-month-old girl with chickenpox for three days goes to an after-hours clinic with an area of redness around one of the lesions on her abdomen and a temperature of 38.7. She's crying constantly. At the after-hours clinic, she's given antibiotics and she's sent home. Mum gives you the history that on arrival at home, the child becomes limp unresponsive, 
and 911 is called. When she gets into your ED department, her vitals show a temp of 39.4, a heart rate of 168, a respiratory rate of 44, a blood pressure of 70 on 35, and a SAT of 94%. She looks ill, she's difficult to rouse, her skin is mottled, and her cap refill is 5 seconds. You see the area of erythema on her abdomen. So with this case in particular, which aspects of the story make you worried about this patient and why? So what doesn't make you worried about this patient? <laughs> when you see this child, you know that this child is sick. Um, it's really important to recognize that and recognize that this child is in septic shock right away on presentation to the ED. So she looks unwell, she's poorly perfused, her level of consciousness is not normal, she has tachycardia that is outside of what you would expect for that level of fever, and her blood pressure is actually low for her age. So this is not just early sepsis, this is full-on septic shock. So you really need to make sure that your triage nurses are trained to recognize this, and that as soon as it's recognized, that that child is placed immediately in the resuscitation room and that you have a protocol for how you're going to resuscitate this child. So this child is one of those kids that you need to recognize immediately who's in septic shock. Now, we do not see that many kids who present like this. You know, I work in a busy community hospital with about 100,000 patient visits a year, and I can't remember the last time I saw a child in septic shock. Can you just give us some perspective on the prevalence of sepsis, septic shock, and death related to sepsis in kids so that we have somewhere to start in terms of how to approach this problem? So there is a huge burden of sepsis if you look at it from a global perspective. Sepsis is one of the leading causes of death in infants and children all around the world. From a North American perspective, there are several sort of epidemiological studies that have come out of the United States that look at the incidence of sepsis, and it looks like sepsis is about 0.35% of all pediatric emergency department visits. So although it's something that we do not see very commonly, it is actually probably more common than things like meningitis, which is now actually a very rare disease. Okay, and in terms of the mortality rate from sepsis and septic shock? So there is a bit of variability in the reported mortality rates. From one sort of large epidemiologic study in the United States, the mortality rate in that study was 9%. Okay, so depending on what community you work in, this isn't a common disease, but it's more common than meningitis. It's something that we really need, be, need to be able to recognize, and it's something that we can make a huge difference with early treatment. So that brings up, which kids do you suspect sepsis in? So there's some of the clinical factors. There's the risk factors. Let's start with the risk factors. What are the risk factors you ask for when you're considering the diagnosis of sepsis? Sepsis clearly has a bimodal age distribution. So sepsis uh, seems to present under a year of age. And then there is a second peak in sort of early adolescence, so sort of that 10 to 14 years of age age group. So that is a little bit of a risk factor. Under a year of age, half of those children will present are actually under a month of age. So that sort of young, young child as well is particularly at risk. 
in terms of what you're actually going to be worried about when you see the child, so tachycardia that's not explained after correcting for fever or in a child that has no state that would otherwise explain tachycardia. So this is a child that is calm, does not appear to be in pain, and has an unexplained tachycardia. So this will be a theme that we talked about in the last episode as well as this episode, and we'll repeat it a few times because it's so important that if you see a kid with tachycardia that's out of proportion of the fever and you can't find any other reason for the tachycardia, that's a risk factor for sepsis and septic shock. Dr. Neto now continues with some risk factors and some clinical clues to the diagnosis of sepsis and septic shock. A child who has poor perfusion, so poor cap refill, altered level of consciousness, so they're either lethargic or they're irritable, and then conditions that would predispose you to sepsis, so a child that has underlying disease, neuromuscular disease, immune compromise, respiratory conditions, cardiac disease, so all of those children are at higher risk. And then the other group that is at high risk is the child with that's had recent surgery. So those are all mm. things that you should be thinking about in your history. That's interesting. I mean, I know for me personally, I don't really think about asking for surgical history in little kids. We're used to asking for surgical history in you know, adults who present with belly pain, for example. But uh, that, that's a good pearl to ask for uh, recent surgery. So we've talked about some of the things that would twig you into thinking that a kid might have sepsis. We talked about the risk factors and some of the clinical factors. What are some of the pitfalls in terms of diagnosing sepsis in kids? In other words, what are some of the things that might mislead us to think that a kid might not have sepsis when in fact they do? So one of the first things to know is what is actually a normal vital sign for that child of that age. So you have to know what is actually tachycardia for a seven-month-old versus what's tachycardia for a seven-year-old. So you have to have some sense of your age-related normals. So do they have tachycardia that is outside of their age range? Tachycardia is a sign of sepsis if you have no other reason to explain the tachycardia, and they have other signs such as organ hypoperfusion. Hypotension is a late sign of sepsis. Hypotension is decompensated shock, and they're going down the slippery slope. So once you start to have low BP, that's a child that is imminently crashing. So you really want to focus on recognizing them when they have tachycardia and tachypnea way before their blood pressure starts to drop. So as opposed to adults, we really use blood pressure to really help us decide how sick a patient is. In pediatrics, by the time they've gotten a low blood pressure, you know they're really crashing and you're too late already. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important to remember these little hearts, they they don't smoke, they don't drink, they have healthy lifestyles. The myocardium is able to increase the heart rate to such a degree to maintain cardiac output and thus maintain blood pressure until very late in the game. And once that they've maxed out those compensatory mechanisms, there's a precipitous drop in blood pressure. Once it starts to go, it goes fast. So recognizing the tachycardia before you go off the cliff cannot be overstressed. We've got this seven-month-old girl in septic shock. Can you just run through for us your initial management? So just to remind our listeners, we've got 
this girl with a SAT of 94%, blood pressure of 70 on 35, respiratory rate of 44, heart rate of 168, her cap refill is five seconds, she looks modeled, she looks sick, she's difficult to rouse. She's going to be brought right into your resuscitation area. You're going to be calling for help. You're going to get her on 100% oxygen. You're going to be starting to get a line. If uh, you've tried two IVs or it's been a minute of trying, you're going to go to IO very early. Let me just repeat that. One minute. So you have 60 seconds to get an IV line in before you go to IO. I just want to emphasize that Getting a line in in a kitty, unless you have really, really experienced pediatric nurses, is going to be unlikely. And so what I do sometimes is, as I come into the resuscitation room, knowing that there's a sick kid, I will grab the IO drill. Yeah, I think that's really important, Anton. You need to normalize the use of the IO. Because even at our place, this kid is totally shut down. So getting this line is going to be tough even for an experienced nurse. The fluid resuscitation is your life is you know one of your two life saving things that you're going to do in the next few minutes. So using the IO gun or manual IO insertion, key. And after you've gotten one IO, if you can't get a peripheral IV quickly, you're putting in a second IO because you're going to want two lines in this patient. Okay, so we'll we'll talk a little bit more about IO. If you just continue with what the basic management of this kid's going to be. So then, you know, we sort of think about that first hour. It's not the golden hour as in trauma, but it's sort of similar concept. So you want to get in 60 mils per kilo of normal saline as quickly as you can within that first hour. Um, And that's your goal is to have 60 per kilo in. So practically speaking, in small kids under two years of age, the way we do that is we pull up fluid into big syringes and we slam it into the line we have. So you're doing that by hand as quickly as you can through whatever line you have. In older kids, we use a level one infuser, but certainly you can't use that in small children. So in small children, it's pulling up normal saline into a 30 or uh, 60 cc syringe and slamming it in as quickly as you can and counting how many you're giving. So that's the first thing. So fluids going in and then antibiotics. So no delay to antibiotics. And generally our first line in this type of patient would be ceftriaxone, 100 milligrams per kilo, and you can give that push. So keeping it simple and prioritizing fluids and antibiotics are the most important thing in patients like this. And this is when it would be nice to know offhand what the dose of ceftriaxone is rather than having to go look it up. It's 100 milligrams per kilogram IV or IO push. Dr. Neto continues with emphasis on the fluids. This is one of those circumstances where fluid resuscitating is so important. You need to get that child resuscitated with fluids first. You need to do it aggressively. We always think about the airway first, but this child needs fluid resuscitation before their airway is managed. If you try to intubate this child before you actually adequately fluid resuscitate them, they are at high high likelihood of crashing during the intubation. Whatever drugs we're going to give for the intubation is going to make them more hypotense, and just the act of doing positive pressure ventilation is going to drop their blood pressure by decreasing their venous return. So you want to fluid resuscitate this child first, worry about the intubation later. So instead of the ABCs, it's the CABs. Circulation is your problem in this child. Wow, that's interesting because, you know, we've historically thought of kids as primarily respiratory when they're crashing and the airway is the most important thing. So I think that's a great 
pearl to remember in the kid that you're suspecting of septic shock that it's really fluid resuscitation that's the primary and first concern. Yeah. I mean, that said, obviously, as you come in the room, you're calling for help. If you are hopefully work in a place where you can have another provider who's on the airway, who, if they need a bit of assistance or a bit of CPAP, they're able to give that. But absolutely, I agree with Gina. Rushing to take over that airway is the wrong thing to do in this septic patient. So knowing that fluid resuscitation is so important and that IO is perhaps one of those things you're going to want to reach for first, let's just talk a little bit more about the pearls and pitfalls of using IO. What tips do you have for our listeners in terms of using an IO to make it safe, fast, and effective? Interosseous is extraordinarily helpful. The interosseous drill is a very good tool. It makes interosseous access easy, and you can use it in all ages. So that really has helped not just pediatrics, but I, you know, into older children and even into the adult population. So an IO can be used even in an awake patient. The studies have shown that the pain from the interosseous is actually more from the infusion than from the actual drilling into the bone. And there are protocols for instilling lidocaine into the bone um, for patients that are awake. So even if your patient is awake, um, if they are sick and they need to be resuscitated, you should not be reluctant to use an IO. So in terms of where to go, um, the PALS guidelines still do recommend proximal tibia as your first spot to try and you know then try on the contralateral side. And that's mostly because in these small bodies... You have people up at the airway, you know, you're going to want the chest exposed, et cetera. And so it just gets people away from maybe where the action is getting that line started, particularly when you're dealing with a small child. If I failed in the proximal tibia, probably next would go to distal femur bilaterally. And then, of course, you can do it in the humerus. I don't think there's as much literature around the, the proximal humerus as we're seeing in the adult, but that is absolutely a place you can go. I think it would be tibia, femur, humerus. And just remind our listeners that anything that you can run through a peripheral IV, you can run through an IO. Yes, you can run all your fluids, inotropes, your antibiotics through the IO. For a detailed discussion on intraosseous in adults, go to episode 30 with Dr. Jordan Chenkin and Jamie Blicker, where we talk about a whole slew of procedures, including intraosseous. Many of these kids with severe sepsis and septic shock will require intubation. Can you give us some of your pearls and pitfalls of airway management when it comes to these kids in septic shock? You had already mentioned that fluids were really important to get going early because a lot of these kids can become hypotensive and crash with intubation. What are some of the other pearls and pitfalls you can give us? So it's important to remember that intubation in these children is not your first priority, and it really should be done in a careful, organized, planned out manner. I already said fluid resuscitate them first. I would consider intubating a child who has fluid refractory shock. So this is a child who's had their three boluses of 20 per kilo of normal saline and still remains in shock. To give medications to that child, most of the medications that we give for intubation are going to cause hypotension. Of all of the medications used for induction, ketamine is probably the safest. It is least likely to cause hypotension 
but even ketamine can cause hypotension in a child that's catecholamine depleted. So it still has to be used with great care. The nice thing about ketamine is that it increases your blood pressure and increases your heart rate. In kids, they're already really, really tachycardic. Is there any danger in making those kids more tachycardic? In terms of tachycardia, you know, children have normal hearts with normal coronary vasculature. I don't think that we worry very much about tachycardia in children the way that you would worry about tachycardia in somebody who is an adult with coronary vascular disease. So when you're thinking about intubating this child, what you don't want to do is you don't want your laryngoscope to be your murder weapon. You want to make sure that you're doing an intubation in a control setting, that it's truly indicated, and that if you are using ketamine, it's not perfect. It can still give you hypotension, even though it's less likely than the other medications. And that just reiterates how important it is to fluid resuscitate them first, during, and after. The paralytic agent really is no different than what you would normally use. We would use either rocuronium or succinylcholine, and then you can consider using atropine depending on the age of the child and what their heart rate is. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we need to remember is that it's not that unusual that a child with sepsis would be managed with non-invasive ventilation using either CPAP or BiPAP. So I think really important for community providers to know that it's okay to wait and that decision can be made later in the patient and that really not all of them go on to be intubated. So it's okay to hold off. So we've talked about fluid resuscitation. We've talked about airway and intubation. Let's say you've given 20, 40, 60 milliliters per kilogram of fluid within your first hour, but your child is still really tachycardic or even worse, their blood pressure is still low. What's your next step? What's your next step? I'd like you to think about what the next thing you would do in this case before Dr. Neto answers. As soon as you suspect that this child has fluid refractory shock, you should be preparing to start your inotrope. You really want to be ready to start your inotrope at 60 minutes after that child has had 60 per kilo. So as soon as you're starting to give that second 20 per kilo, if that child is not showing any signs of improvement, you should be thinking about what inotrope you're going to use. You can use either dopamine or epinephrine. Most of the time we start with dopamine at 10 mics per kilo per minute. Most children have cold shock, so epinephrine would be the next agent that you would use. But start thinking about your inotrope early so the nurses have time to get it ready and so that it's ready to go as soon as you determine that that child is not better after their 60 mils per kilo. So let's talk a little bit more about inotropes. In adults, the literature over the last few years has brought levofed to the top, and that's our go-to medication in adults for septic shock. Can you just go through for us a little bit of what the literature and guidelines show in kids about what the first and second line inotropes are for kids in septic shock? So dopamine is still the recommended first choice. I think it has to do with it is very familiar, it's easy to prepare, and most centers are very comfortable with its use. If 
you need to go to a second inotrope. The second line inotrope in children is actually epinephrine, and that has to do with children presenting in cold shock rather than in warm shock. Most children that have septic shock have cold shock. So what I mean by that is they have high systemic vascular resistance and low cardiac output. In contrast to that, most adults have low systemic vascular resistance and present with warm shock. In terms of the literature, I don't know that there's actually good literature to support what is the ideal inotrope for use in children. The pediatric guidelines still do say to start with dopamine, but I also think it's perfectly acceptable to go to epinephrine if you're comfortable with its use. Okay. And so there is a distinction that you made between cold shock and warm shock. How do you tell that at the bedside? So a child is going to be poorly perfused. They're going to have delayed cap refill. They're going to have cold extremities. There's going to be a difference between the temperature in their core and their periphery. In contrast, warm shock, there's bounding pulses with a wide pulse pressure. They're warm, they're flush, they're hot. So it's very different in terms of their clinical presentation. So just to review the dosages of pressors for pediatric patients in septic shock, you start with dopamine at 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute. Next, if clinically the patient is in cold shock, you would start epinephrine at 0.05 to 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute and titrate to effect. You want to be looking for improved perfusion and improved peripheral pulses. Now, one thing to add is, although dopamine is the first-line presser in pediatric septic shock, and most kids will be in cold shock, and so epinephrine would be your second line, if you determine that the child is in warm shock, then the second line would be norepinephrine. And the dose is the same as epinephrine, at 0.05 to 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute and titrate to effect. 0.05 to 0.3 micrograms per kilogram per minute and titrate to effect. So when it comes to inotropes, in adults, we ideally give them through a central line. We just finished talking about how in kids that are in septic shock, we want to get peripheral lines in as soon as we can. We want to get those IOs in as soon as we can. Eventually, those kids might need a central line but that might delay your initial management in the ED. So when it comes to inotropes, can you initially give your inotropes through a peripheral line rather than a central line? Absolutely. You don't want in a child to be mucking around trying to get a central line. You want to start those inotropes at an hour if they haven't responded to their initial fluids. And you know, starting a central line, that's going to delay that. You can worry about the central line later. You can worry about it once they go to ICU. But initially, you want to start those inotropes peripherally. Okay, so you can either put them through a peripheral line, or if you can't get a peripheral line by an hour, which sometimes happens too, you can give your inotrope through the IO. Absolutely. So we've talked about the importance of fluid resuscitation. We've talked a little bit about airway. What are some of the other pitfalls in that first hour 
that we really need to be on top of in these kids with septic shock. Well, I think, you know, one thing that people will sometimes forget is to check the glucose. And one of our colleagues has a mnemonic A, B, C, D, E, F, G, which is don't ever forget glucose. So remember to check it. Generally, glucose less than 2.6, we would treat. And we generally would treat it with 5 cc's per kilo of D10W, which you should have easily available. We don't generally use higher concentrations of dextrose because it can be pretty caustic to little veins. So 5 cc's per kilo of D10 would be our treatment. And then obviously rechecking within 15, 20 minutes post-treatment and then sort of rechecking throughout the resuscitation would be important. Um, We know that hypo and hyperglycemia are associated with poor outcomes in pediatric sepsis. The hypoglycemia is usually what we're dealing with in the resuscitation room, and the hyperglycemia is often something that is managed with insulin infusions um, in the ICU setting. So really make sure to remember to check the glucose to treat it and to uh, follow up on your results. I love that. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A, B, C. Don't ever forget about glucose. Amazing. So the the next thing that I wanted to talk about, which is a little bit different in adults versus kids when it comes to septic shock, is steroids. In adults, hydrocortisone and septic shock has fallen out of favor unless the patient is known to be on steroids or requires a stress dose of steroids for some other reason. It certainly isn't given routinely in septic shock anymore. How is this different in kids? Do you give steroids routinely in kids that you suspect might be suffering from septic shock? We know that 25% of children that present in septic shock will have some amount of adrenal insufficiency. Some of that is related to the actual shock itself. Some of that has to do with steroid use. And then there's children that have primary adrenal insufficiency. There is an ongoing trial looking at the use of hydrocortisone in septic shock in children. So there will probably be more information about this in the coming next few years. But right now, the recommendation is that you should consider using hydrocortisone in any child that has fluid refractory catecholamine resistant shock. And the dose that we recommend at our center is 2 milligrams per kilo of hydrocortisone. So all this being said, septic shock in kids is pretty uncommon, especially if you work in a general community hospital. What does the literature say about the value of protocols for sepsis in kids? And how would you recommend community hospitals implementing protocols in their department for this sort of thing? There are several studies that have been published in the past few years that look at the use of sepsis protocols. And all of them have shown that having an established protocol for sepsis in pediatrics in your ED improve outcomes. In the studies, even with numbers of sort of 200 patients each, there was a substantial decrease in mortality in all of the studies. So I would encourage all of the hospitals to have a sepsis protocol that would include an algorithm for the fluid resuscitation and inotropes, antibiotics for your patients. I would also encourage having some sort of a screening tool that can be used at triage, but at any time during that visit. And in addition, having pre-calculated dosages for all of the medications that you're going to use in that resuscitation readily available. 
We will have the very clear, easy-to-use, and practical algorithm for pediatric shock from the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario on the blog post and the written summary, and I do encourage you to review it a few times and bring it to your hospital committees to see if you can implement something similar in your ED. So for those hospitals who don't see that many kids, a lot of these dosages and the normal vital signs and how to implement these key management points when you're confronted with a patient in septic shock, sometimes it's chaotic. What are some of the cognitive decision aids that can help in making the management of a patient with septic shock smoother? Yeah, I mean, I think this goes to any sick kid. You know, there's no way you're going to remember all of this stuff. So even in our department, up on the wall, we have a poster that has the how to calculate GCS for the verbal and nonverbal child, right? We have our PALS algorithms in our resuscitation room as well that are easily accessible. A Braslow tape, we don't use it as often probably because we're more experienced with this population, but having a Braslow tape that is going to estimate the weight of the child and give you all the doses of your resuscitation drugs, super helpful knowing where to look for a chart of normal vital signs for age or having that actually up or available in your resuscitation room, that would be on its own a very powerful thing to do for your team so that you know where to look for it and that you remember that you need to assess whether the vital signs are normal. All of these things are very simple little interventions, but I think can make a big difference when your heart rate's also 140 because you have a very sick kid in front of you. Before we wrap up the episode, I just want to talk about one topic that's currently sexy in the adult septic shock world, and that is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, or ECMO. Can you tell us a little bit about what ECMO is and how it's used in kids who are suffering from septic shock? So, I mean, essentially, it's putting the child on a bypass machine to treat their cardiorespiratory failure. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience at CHEO of its use in your hospital? So we do have access to ECMO at our center. Not all pediatric centers do have ECMO available. I have seen it used several times in the setting of severe sepsis and septic shock. This is usually a child who is in the ICU who is refractory to all treatment, who is in cardiorespiratory failure, who has either severe myocardial dysfunction, plus or minus respiratory distress syndrome, and it's really outside of the realm of something that we would consider in the emergency department. Yeah, logistically speaking, this is, you know, the CV surgeon comes in to put in the cannula as required for ECMO. This is not something that I can foresee happening in the ED setting in the near future. I think Scott Weingart would disagree, but that's okay. We can leave that for another discussion. Listen, I have to say that what we need is for people to recognize a tachycardic child who's in early sepsis and resuscitate them effectively, and ECMO is way down the line. So the first priority must be the recognition and that early fluid resuscitation and antibiotics. And talking about ECMO is way beyond the scope of what we need to be doing better. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Here's a few quick take-home points. 
What you don't want to do is you don't want your laryngoscope to be your murder weapon. I love that. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. A, B, C. Don't ever forget about glucose. Don't forget me. You don't want in a child to be mucking around trying to get a central line. Consider using hydrocortisone in any child that has fluid refractory catecholamine resistant shock. Just a couple of announcements. In October 2015, we're going to have North York General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Europe. This time it's going to be in France. And if you're an avid cyclist, you're not going to want to miss this conference. They combine top-notch speakers like Amal Matu, Chris Hicks, and Mike Betzner, and more with cycling. And even if you're a beginning cyclist, they have programs for cyclists of all level of skill. So until next time... Take it easy.